Happy New Year. The A-10 was designed for close air support of friendly ground troops, attacking armored vehicles, tanks, providing quick action support against enemy ground forces. The A-10 can carry 16,000 pounds of mixed ordnance and is armed with the 7-barrel GAU-8, a 30mm Gatling gun designed to take out adversaries' armored vehicles. The A-10 Thunderbolt Cockpit is a single-seat cockpit and is protected by all-around armor with a titanium bathtub structure to protect the pilot that is up to 3.8 centimeter thick. The cockpit has a large bulletproof bubble canopy which gives good all-around vision. There's something else that the Air Force's A-10 Thunderbolt II the mighty Warthog is equipped with, and that is the pilot that we are going to be speaking with today on this episode of the Medal of Honor podcast. Who is this pilot? Her name is Kim Casey Campbell. Kim Campbell is a retired Air Force colonel who served in the Air Force for over 24 years as a fighter pilot and senior military leader. She has flown 1,800 hours in the A-10 Warthog, including more than 100 combat missions protecting troops on the ground in both Iraq and Afghanistan. In 2003, Kim was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for heroism after successfully recovering her battle-damaged airplane after an intense close air support mission in Baghdad. As a senior military leader, Kim has led hundreds of airmen both at home and abroad in deployed locations and enabled them to succeed in their missions. She has experienced leading complex organizations and driving culture change. Kim knows what it takes to be a successful leader to inspire and empower high performance teams to achieve success. Kim is passionate about leadership and feels strongly that leaders earn trust by leading with courage and connecting with their team. I'm Kim Campbell, and I decided that I wanted to be an Air Force fighter pilot when I was in the fifth grade. And... The reason that idea came about, I think, um, is, I don't know, maybe a bit ironic, but when I was in the fifth grade in 1986, I watched the Space Shuttle Challenger launch, and then 73 seconds later, watched the disaster that unfolded. And there was something to me that I connected with in that moment of realizing that those astronauts died doing something that they believed in, something that was bigger than themselves, something that was more important than them. Than them. And after talking with my parents and trying to figure it out, you know, I realized that that was something that I wanted to do. I wanted to find that passion that I was so committed to that I would be willing to give my life for it. And I also love this idea of this thrill of flight. And I decided that 
being a pilot and joining the Air Force and then going to the Air Force Academy was the path that I wanted to take. And from that moment on in fifth grade, that was I, everything I did now turned to that, turned to this idea of service and flight. And by the time I got to be about 16, instead of asking for a car or driver's lessons or anything like that for my 16th birthday, I asked for flying lessons instead. And so I got the opportunity to fly uh, in a Cessna when I was 16. And I flew out of San Jose International Airport. And I just remember flying and um, being on the ground in this little tiny Cessna and then all these big commercial airliners behind me. And then finally, when I was 17, got it, getting to solo for the first time. So flying in an airplane by myself for the first time. And I just realized how much I love to fly. I love the thrill of flight. I loved everything that went with it. Um, and then from that, that way forward, it was all about going to the Air Force Academy. Um, all about pursuing my dream of ideally becoming an astronaut someday, but with the, with the interim plan of being an Air Force fighter pilot. It's, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I can't, my kids are now of the age where they're talking about what they want to do in their life. And sometimes I look at the things that they're doing or the things that they're saying, and I, they scare me in some ways because both of my children have an interest in joining the service. And I think about like what my parents thought when I told them that I wanted to be a fighter pilot, right? Like that I was going to go to the Air Force Academy. This was 1986. Women weren't actually allowed to be fighter pilots in 1986. They never told me that. Like, I just, I didn't know that that wasn't a thing. And my dad had gone to the Air Force Academy. He had been in the Air Force for five years. And he knew how hard the Academy was for him. And there weren't women there then. So he knew how hard it was going to be for me. And so I think there was part of him that was terrified by the idea that this is what I wanted to go do with my life. And yet he never said anything. He just realized once I said this was my goal, this is what I'm going to go out and do. He fully supported me in that and didn't tell me that women weren't actually allowed to do those things yet. So, um, you know, I think as a parent now, looking back at that and what my parents must have been thinking and going through. And now as a parent, I get to see it with my own children and think about, you know, what it means for them if they decide to serve and how, as a parent, how terrifying in many ways that can be. I think I really realized how difficult my, my goal and dream was going to be. Um, in high school, because I was part of the debate team, and we ended up doing a debate on women in combat. And that's when I started to realize that there were there were restrictions, um, there were restrictions on women and what women were allowed to do. Um, but I had really supportive mentors and teachers and coaches and parents around me that essentially said, Look, if that's what you want to do, then go for it. And don't let it stop you. Now, I graduated high school in 1993, and the ban on women uh, serving in combat roles in, in aviation and the Air Force was lifted. And so it wasn't anything that I had to worry about. But it still meant that when it came time for me to go into the flying community, there were very few women. Um, I walked into my fighter squadron on day one, and I was one of, 
I think, 43 female fighter pilots in the entire Air Force. So there were roughly about 3,000 to 3,500 fighter pilots in the Air Force at that time. But women only made up about 1%. And I was the only female pilot in my squadron. I personally put a lot of pressure on myself to do well. I don't think anybody else put pressure on me. I mean, we put we really put pressure on every fighter pilot. Every new pilot that walks into the squadron, there's pressure to perform and pressure to prove yourself, to be credible. For me, I put additional pressure on myself because I didn't want to ruin it for all the women that came after me if I failed or if I made mistakes. But that was pressure I put on myself. That isn't pressure that anybody said anything or put on me. That was just pressure I put on myself. And so I worked really hard. I worked really hard to be good at what I was doing. I wanted to prove that I was credible. You know, and that, quite honestly, that paid off because I was able to prove that I was credible very early in my career in combat. Yeah, I think I I have always been competitive. I... I haven't always been good at things, though. I mean, I I played a lot of sports. I wasn't always uh, good at all of them, but I worked really hard. And I think that was something for me that I learned growing up was that I didn't like not being good at it. So I just worked really hard to get good at it. And I think back to a time in high school, I was I ran cross country, and on one of the races. Um, I certainly wasn't the best runner. I didn't, you know, I wasn't out there winning cross country races, but I pushed myself really hard to improve each time and try to get better, or at least, you know, pick off a few runners along the way. And at the start of the race, when the gun went off, it's this mass gaggle of people and it's just really crowded. And someone stepped on the back of my shoe and it came off. And I had a split second of hesitation of like, do I stop and put on the shoe? Well, now I'm going to be at the back of the pack. And, you know, I, I don't want to be at the back of the pack. And so I was decided that I would run the entire mile and a half, I think, race without a shoe on. Just because I didn't want to be slowed down. I didn't want to be held back. Uh, hindsight might not have been the best decision, but that was just kind of my competitive nature at the time. Like I didn't want to quit. I didn't want to be at the back. And so I ran the entire race without a shoe on. That race also happens to be the moment that my dad realized that I had kind of the grit and determination to get through the academy, um, that I had kind of proven myself in a, in a physical way of like, I can do hard things and I'm going to work hard at it. But I think that competitive nature has always been with me. I have never felt like a natural athlete or a natural pilot. It's always been something that I have struggled with a little bit and then just realized that I had to put in the work if I was going to get good at it. Um, I struggled at pilot training. I had air sickness issues, which you think might be crazy for somebody that wants to be a fighter pilot. But I had to, you know, I had to work my way through that. But I think every time I had to do something that was hard, it like pushed me to do better. Like it made me want to work harder Anytime anybody questioned whether I was good enough or was going to make it, it just gave me that much more determination to do it better. And sometimes that's that little, you know, it's taking that motivation. I mean, because you have the other alternative, right, is that you when someone tells you you can't do it or I don't think you're good enough is to listen to it and to decide not to do something. And I think the other spin is you take it and you go, all right, well, let me prove you that I can, you know, let me prove to you that that I am good enough, that I can do this. 
Um, I actually got rejected from the Air Force Academy in my my first attempt at getting in there. And I mean, that was everything that I had worked for, right? That was the only thing that I wanted to do. And I, I was devastated. And, you know, I could have just said, all right, maybe that's a sign, you know, even though it's what I want. They said, no, I'm not good enough. So I'll do something else. And with some encouragement, I mean, this was, I keep in mind my age at the time, I, you know, <laughs> I needed some help at this point to, to get to the point where I was like, I realized I wasn't going to quit on this. Like I wanted it so bad. And so I wrote to the Air Force Academy every week and sent them letters and said, if somebody else decides not to go, please pick me because I'm interested. I told them I, if I had improved with something, like I could do 10 more push-ups or a few more pull-ups or whatever it was, I just wanted them to remember my name and that I was still interested. And eventually, two months later, I got an acceptance letter to the academy. But I I often think about what would have happened if I had quit, right? Where would my life path have taken? I mean, I don't know, but it's interesting to think about maybe all the opportunities I would have missed if I had quit when someone said, essentially, you're not good enough. That's not what the letter said, but that is what I read into it. Yeah. I think for me, the reason I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy was it was the way to get to be a pilot. Um, the way that was kind of the path that it would take for me to get to this goal that I had of becoming a fighter pilot. I think when I when I got to the academy, I mean, of course, I I understood service and I understood commitment. I don't think I really got it though. Like I I knew what it was and I thought I had an idea of it. I don't think I really got it until you know, until you get to the point where you say the oath, that feels, you know, it's starting to sink in. But honestly, for me, I think it's sunk in years later. I mean, after I'm already probably a captain in the Air Force, because that was at the point where I was really at the peak of my A-10 flying. And I understood commitment and service from the aspect of now post 9-11, constant deployments, and this desire and commitment to serve our troops on the ground. And this overwhelming sense for me that I had found my purpose, like I had found my why my I I knew I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I think I didn't quite understand the commitment and passion that I would feel for being an A-10 pilot and supporting our troops on the ground. Once I experienced that and had that relationship with our troops on the ground, to me, there was no greater mission. There was no greater sense of service for me than supporting our troops on the ground. I think that is when it clicked for me. I think everything leading up to that was a nice idea of it, but I don't think I truly got it until many years later. what I have realized is that, you know, none of this happened by myself. Yeah. None of it, none of, none of my time in service, none of the, I mean, yes, I fly an A-10 by myself, but there's always the support, right. Of my wingman in, in, in the training that we go through, that we go through together. I mean, none of it would have happened by myself. Um, You know, even as a leader, I think of all the people that helped me, 
you know, deal with struggles and leadership and help mentor me and guide me. I mean, none of it happens on your own. And so I think being humble is allows you to create connection. I think, um, you know, certainly there's confidence, but I think there's also humility that, you know, my reason for flying A-10s and working to be good at it is to support our troops on the ground. And I'm really in service for them. My reason for being a leader is to help lead my team and lift my team and make them better. I mean, because at some point I'm gone and the team is still there. And so I think, I think humility is a key component to being a leader. Um, in fact, the Air Force Weapons School teaches humble, approachable, credible. And that's what they inspect of their instructors is, you know, being humble, approachable, and credible, which absolutely is critical. It's yeah, it takes a while. It takes a while for it all to kind of sink in. I mean, it's just, obviously, I knew I had a commitment to serve. I was going to have a 10-year commitment in the Air Force after pilot training, but I don't think I fully grasped what it meant or how connected I would feel to the idea of serving. Mm-hmm. Um, just how important it was for me. I mean, it really defined my identity for 24 years was service. And so, um, certainly when it comes time to transition, you know, obviously fast forwarding now 24 years, it, it is a change. It's completely different because it's what I've done for 24 years. And so that commitment, that passion for service, um, I had to find, you know, I had to find somewhere else where, you know, I wasn't necessarily supporting troops on the ground anymore. But for me, when I went back to the Air Force Academy, where I closed out my career, I had a new passion, a new commitment to help lead our next generation and help share all those stories with them. Um, And then once you officially retire and it's time to be done with that, it's, you know, there is this period of uncertainty of, you know, you miss some of those things that you got from that service, that sense of camaraderie and teamwork and um, the friendships. Um, That is something I do miss, but I think you can still find it outside the service as well. Yeah, I think even in the veteran community, it's like that. Um, I think when you put veterans together, um, you can jump into a conversation. Like, like, even with you and me, you were Air Force, I was Army, you were an officer, I was enlisted, you were in aviation, I had a desk job, so to speak. So there's, it's like, where's that commonality? But there doesn't have to, that, that commonality, the commonality is the desire to serve yeah, and to, and to like, just basically say, uncle Sam, you can do with me what you want for the greater good of the mission. Um, and that's because of that, that commonality, you can talk to anybody that experienced the same thing, I think, and have some sort of relatability and then learn something in the conversation too. Because oh, you yeah. get to see something from another person's perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think veterans, um, based on our service, whether it was five years or 25 years, I mean, I don't know that it matters. I think there's still this connection and bond because of the service. And I also think that I've seen a lot of veterans sell themselves short on all these capabilities they have based on the things that they've experienced. I mean, I think veterans are something about a veteran who knows how to be part of a team, knows how to lead a team, knows how to keep a team together, because that's, that's what we do. 
Um, we understand how to deal with difficult problems and face adversity. We know how to lead. Whether you're leading one person or a thousand people, I think everybody's had different levels of leadership. And I, I think those are things that you don't see everywhere. And so I think there's a lot of things that veterans bring to the table that sometimes we sell ourselves short on, that we don't understand how much we've learned and experienced that's worthy to share with others. And like, you know, like we talk about, it's so important to share those stories and experiences to help other people experience them too, to help share the message, to help share the lessons learned. Because I think there's a lot, you know, there's a lot that we can gain from hearing other people's stories. So I officially retired on August 1st. So just a few months ago. And honestly, it's been a really nice transition. I, the reason I retired was because of my family and wanting to spend more time with them. I have two young kids and I felt like it was important for me to be around and to be part of their lives um, more than I had been. And so I made that difficult decision. And, you know, for 20 years, I flew A-10s. And that was my whole, you know, purpose and reason reason for being on the military side of things. Obviously, I'm mom and wife as well. But for me, in, in terms of service, my passion, my why, my reason for being was to be an A-10 pilot and to support our troops on the ground. My final flight in the A-10 was in 2018. And it was tough. I mean, that is how I identified with for so long as being an A-10 pilot. And I was really you know, there's part of me that was sad to leave that. But I was also really excited because I went on to the Air Force Academy and I found my new why in terms of helping to mentor the next generation of leaders and to share those stories and to share those lessons learned. And then when it came time to retire, it's kind of like, okay, now where do I go with this? And I think for me, I had been contemplating retirement for a couple of years. In fact, I had submitted my retirement application uh, three times. And this was the first time that it actually stuck. And so I had been thinking about retirement and kind of what I would do. And I realized that it was really important for me to find something that I loved, that I wanted to, you know, that I wanted to commit myself to and have control over my schedule as well. Uh, That has been a nice change. But I wanted to find something that I was passionate about that I love to do. And so that's what has helped me find I would say my voice and being able to share a message and whether that's through public speaking or executive coaching or workshops, um, I really enjoy sharing stories and sharing experiences and sharing those lessons learned. I don't really want anybody to have to go fly a fighter jet over downtown Baghdad and get hit with a missile. Like uh, that's really not something I recommend for anybody to go through, but I learned so many lessons out of that, that, I feel like I have a responsibility to share those with other people. That it's that's um, my responsibility to share those. That's I feel like one of the reasons that I made it home safely is to to share those lessons and those experiences. So I'm excited about the next chapter. It is different, um, but I also joined an incredible team at Victory Strategies, which feel which has that sense of camaraderie. I mean, when you find a team that you can work with that has that sense of camaraderie and support, um, I think, you know, that's very similar to what we all experienced in the military as well. And I didn't get credit for it. Not that that's why I did it. Right. But so the fact that you give credit to those people, I think is amazing. 
Well, if you think about like the number of people it takes to get one A-10 airborne, I mean, there are so many people behind the scenes that, that generally don't get credit for the work that they do. I mean, it's it's the crew chiefs who are really out on the line and, and tip of the spear in terms of the maintenance piece, but they're, they make sure that that airplane can fly. But there is an entire team behind them from the back shop to the refuelers to the specialists. I mean, it, to think about the number of people that just go in to getting one airplane airborne, and especially in combat when we're cycling airplanes so quickly and, you know, in the middle of the night, they're changing weapons and loading weapons and getting airplanes ready to go. I mean, it's just, it's phenomenal. And yeah, I, I hop out to the airplane and so much work has been done already. And I just, you know, I trust the guys that they have done the job well. I mean, that I put my trust in them because they're experts. They know a hell of a lot more about it than I do. And so I trust their expertise. But, you know, I could not have made it home from Baghdad if I didn't have a tremendous team from my flight lead, um, who I refer to as my wingman, because he, you know, he provided me that mutual support. I mean, Getting hit over Baghdad was probably one of the most terrifying moments of my life. And yet in that moment, when all I could focus on was getting the airplane under control, and he had the situational awareness that I didn't. I mean, he I did not have the brain bites to think about anything else other than trying to recover the airplane. And he's telling me things like put out more chaff and flare because they're still shooting at us and he doesn't want me to get hit again. When I tell him that I'm in manual reversion, which is our backup system, he's telling me immediately to fly west because in his mind, he knows that if I need to eject, he wants me to be over the friendly location. You know, I just didn't have the situational awareness to think of that. I, he told me to emergency jettison everything when I said I'm having trouble climbing. I didn't quite say it that calmly, but <laughs> uh, he said, you know, he told me emergency jettison everything to get the airplane to climb. So in that moment, having that wingman next to me was so critical to helping me that make it back safely. And then even the entire flight home, I mean, the call went out to everybody that an A-10 had been hit over Baghdad. And I've got F-15s overhead providing uh, cover for us. I've got rescue helicopters on alert in case I have to eject so they can come in and get me. Our A-10 search and rescue team is ready to go. So all of these people were there for me, right? They they were all ready to come and get me no matter the outcome. I mean, even when I came back to land, I mean, the rescue helicopters were still there waiting in case I decided to eject. And then I had an entire crash recovery team ready to go in case, you know, the worst happened on landing. And so I look at that. I mean, it's those are the people that made it happen. I mean, those are the people that would, I mean, if things had gone wrong, they, you know, I had, I had that support. I had people there to help me recover. So it's absolutely not possible without the team. Queen 
must be forgot and days of old lang syne. For old lang syne, my dear. For old lang syne, we'll talk a cup of kindness yet for days of old lang syne. Should.